everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. The drama that I have chosen to discuss today is called Mr. Sunshine. So this is a 2018 historical fucking tragedy (laughs) is what it is. Um, I have so many feelings around this, um, this show, this experience of watching this drama. It kind of destroyed me, but I loved it on an insane level. Like for me, this is one of those dramas, you know, those ones that just creep inside your heart. And it's like, I, I, my heart has been aching for weeks. Like it is insane. And I just cannot get this show out of my head. So, um, I hope that when I discuss this show, it will be slightly coherent and not insane, (laughs) but I make no promises because I feel very like intense about it right now. And I'm definitely not over the experience of watching it. Um, You can tell when something has really, really gotten under my skin because I changed the wallpaper on my phone. Um, And that's what I did. I now have a new one on my phone and it's from this drama. Um, So some of this, uh, some of this like discussion, I'm going to try and be coherent and talk about the story and, you know, my experience watching it and all that kind of stuff like I normally do. And then I'm also, I... I'm presuming at the start of this discussion um, that at some point throughout this, I will be doing some major, major fangirling. (laughs) And um, I don't think I'm going to stop myself from doing that because uh, that's how I feel. And um, I definitely want to be honest about how I feel and how I feel is crazed, like excited and heart achy and just really intense about this show. Um, So it is called Mr. Sunshine. It is a high profile Korean drama. Like this is a big budget, um, big name actors, uh, super, super famous writer. So the writer of this show, Kim and Suk, Uh, She is super famous. Um, As I record this at the moment, her latest drama is airing, uh, which is The King Eternal Monarch, which stars Lee Min Ho and Udo Hwan and um, Kim Go-un. And then before that, the drama, you know, Mr. Sunshine came out in 2018 that she wrote. In set 2017, she did Guardian, The Lonely and Great God, which is also, you know, Goblin. Uh, 2016, she did Descendants of the Sun. And then 2013, with Lee Min Ho again, she did The Heirs. Um, 
like she is a mega, she's a hit maker, I suppose. Like everything she brings out, there's going to be a lot of money and a lot of interest and a lot of big name actors attached. And this drama is no different. It's a really interesting thing because I adore historical Korean dramas. Like I really fucking love them, as I'm sure anyone who's listened to this podcast more than once will have noticed because I am mad about the whole history stuff. Um, but when this show came out, like I avoided it. I was like, nah, I'm not in the mood, not in the mood. And I think it's because I knew it was going to be a tragedy. Um, I can't remember. I don't really particularly think that I read that it was going to be a tragedy. I think I could just tell because while it was airing, um, you know, every now and then I'd sort of like look at the articles about it and I just wasn't in the mood to have my heart ripped open, I suppose. And I was right. Um, spoiler alert. It is a tragedy of the most, it is so tragic. Like I cried so much at the end of this drama and throughout the drama. Um, but the reason that, you know, a show like this is going to be tragic is because of the time period that it is set in the historical time period, period, which is a true, you know, um, all true things that happened, like a lot of the big events, all obviously heaps of this is fictionalized. These are fictional characters, but there's definitely a lot of true, real, you know, historical figures rolling around in the background and doing different things. Um, and this is obviously, this drama is set um, just before and then into the Japanese invasion and occupation of Korea. So this is one of the most tragic periods of Korean history. And Frankly, Korean history has a lot of very tragic periods. Like they have been invaded a lot. They've been occupied for years. They've like so much awful stuff has happened in their history. But this period is absolutely not only is it super fresh, I suppose it's not even really that long ago, um, but it's just you know, nothing good happened. That's for sure. And, um, I have watched a few different dramas set, uh, during kind of this Japanese occupation time or just before it, um, or, you know, in the twenties or thirties and they're always tragic. They're always going to have really tragic endings. Um, and the theme is always going to be sacrifice and death. And, you know, I, I totally get that. And that's what I knew about this show going into it. Like you cannot set a Korean drama at the very beginning and during the beginning of the Japanese occupation. So this is like a set around, you know, a lot of the drama takes place in the early 1900s and kind of travels through to like 1907. And so you can't have a happy ending in 1907 and then know that, you know, the occupation lasts until 1945. You know, there is no happy ending there. This is tragedy. And the only happy ending that could ever happen is that the characters escape and get to live a lovely little happy life somewhere else outside of Joseon. But that is not a happy ending either. And that is one of the things that this drama wrestles with a lot. This idea of, yeah, you can walk away, but this is your people. This is your country. You are leaving everyone to die. And, you know, maybe one person can't make a difference, but if a lot of people as one person independently rise up, then that can make a difference. And the saddest thing about a show like this is knowing that 
you know, it, everything that those Korean freedom fighters and righteous army and all that stuff do, obviously it makes a difference. It's incredible what those people gave their lives towards, but it doesn't result in, you know, independence for Korea um, realistically until the end of World War II. Um, um, so it's very sad. I wasn't actually going to go into all that history stuff at the start of this little discussion. Um, I was going to, I'm going to be kind of light on the history when I talk about the show and I am going to talk a little bit about the history, which is fascinating and terrible. Um, during my random thing at the end of, um, this kind of K-drama discussion, um, because it, it does feel very important to know what that landscape is and to understand the true elements of it, um, but yeah, that's not that's not where I was going to start. <laughs> I actually thought I was just going to spend like the whole discussion just fangirling wildly. And it seems that that <laughs> I loved this show. Right. And I feel like I approached it in three different ways. I feel like I love it as a K-drama. I love the characters. I love the story. I love the way it's shot. I think it's a really good show. Um, and then I also felt ruined and destroyed by understanding the history and understanding a little bit more about what the Korean people went through during this tumultuous, awful time. And then on the third level, um, I'm going to say it's like a fangirl level, but it's a bit more than that too. Like, I don't want to just act like so there's a character in this show called Gu Dong Mei. He's like, you know, I guess he's sort of like the second male lead sort of, um, but it's definitely an ensemble cast. So played by the actor Yu Yeon Suk, um, who I love. Um, but I just didn't expect to get so hooked on this character. And it's a super tragic story, but I was obsessed. And yes, I know that everything about this character, Gu Dong Mei, is very much like to my taste, like, you know, unrequited love, tragic, like he's a sword dude, always covered in blood, fighting people. He's like super badass and cool. But I think it's more than that too. Like this is the kind of character that everything rolls together in terms of writing, the story, the performance, the actor yes he's super hot I admit that that's a true fact but that is not all there is to it and it is one of those like everything coming together perfectly for me to exactly kind of be what I want out of a character and it's one of those moments that for me <laughs> I'm like oh my gosh I want to write a book with him as the main character um so this has happened to me a lot in k-dramas you know I will come across a kind of a side character and suddenly I'm like I need to write my own version of their story so that they can be the main characters so that they can have like um you know a less fucking awful ending um so this this is what that was for me and um I adored this character and I think the performance was amazing but I'll talk about that a little bit later because um I feel like I'm getting like really off track I really hope I can keep this stuff coherent and not just like squee at you guys this show is so good it is I was just hooked the whole time it is so beautiful to look at, like the costumes, the set design, um, the characters are so interesting. And I think the themes that the show discusses, um, there are a lot and it's on very, like a lot of different levels. Like it's not all just about sacrifice. Um, there's all this interesting commentary and thoughtfulness put into, you know, the class system and, and what the Korean landscape looked like after the Gabo reform and slavery being abolished 
and suddenly people aren't slaves anymore and there's all this um, you know, bitterness towards you know the way that these slaves were treated and um so I think one thing I really loved about this show is it is such a melting pot of cultures in terms of this time period in Korea. Um, you know, Korea earlier to this was known um, to the outside world as a hermit kingdom. Like they shut their doors tight. They didn't let people in, but it also means they didn't modernize, which is why Japan has such an upper leg in this kind of struggle. You know, Korea is just they are not equipped um, and they don't have the knowledge in terms of their military might or the strategic or just anything like that. So they're definitely the underdogs. Um, but we've got, you know, in this point in history, there are just people from all over the world kind of honing in on Joseon to see what they can get out of it. So in um, Hansong, there are Japanese kind of military and high up officials, but there's also like Japanese mobsters, or I guess they're like Yakuza type kind of things. I don't know, like samurai and ronin and stuff who are all there to kind of make a dollar. There are, um, you know, and then there's people from France and all through Europe and England and America and Russia. Um, so it's so complicated, but, and I really liked, I mean, I'm going to admit that there are no good, like, I mean, uh, nice Japanese characters in this drama, <laughs> uh, realistically, or maybe like one or two side characters, I suppose, but not really. Like there's a lot of sort of, they're just evil. They're really kind of, um, you know, just trying to destroy everything. But I, I did appreciate that for every other sort of, um, I guess, a country and the people representing those countries, I felt like it was more nuanced. You know, for instance, in a show like this, you could think that every Joseon person is going to be like, have a heart of gold and be perfect. And that's not the case. Um, I think the show did a really good job of discussing that, yeah, there's shit people and good people everywhere. Um, and I really liked that. And even though I think all the Japanese characters were very highly, you know, characterized to be completely evil and over the top, I also get that. We're talking about a very sensitive period of history and there is a lot of ill will um, in terms of this stuff. And I so I, I understand um, the decision of the writer around that. I do get it. Um, so, yeah, I really I loved the whole melting pot and the idea of seeing Joseon on this verge of change. It's just so fascinating. So the setting is amazing. But I think um, the character, you know, the costuming and everything is just incredible. So I didn't even mention at the start of this kind of like intro part that it is a 24 episode drama. Um, I was hooked and I just watched it straight through to the end. Like I just couldn't get enough of this show. And um, the ending is so intense. It was like a lot of blubbering and tears. Um, so that's kind of like my little intro for the 2018 Korean drama at 24 episodes called Mr. Sunshine. So now I'm going to get uh, into a little bit of setup, talk about the characters, the romance, and a few little things before I get into my fangirl section. <laughs> All right, here we go. So the drama begins in 1871 and it is set in Joseon obviously and it's about this so there's this young boy called Eugene who is a slave he's like eight years old and um 
he's, you know, a slave of a noble young bun family um, somewhere in Joseon. And basically his mother is, you know, she's a pretty woman and some fucking horrible nobleman sees her and decides he wants her. He doesn't care that she's married and she has a son, whatever. So the two noble families are kind of like, um, you know, they're making deals over this woman. Like, yes, I'll give you my slave, but I can't really give you my slave because, you know, she has a husband. So the husband overhears and tries to get, you know, his family out. He tries to get his wife out, but they get caught. He gets bashed to death. Um, the wife and the child is about to get murdered. So this child is Yujin, who grows up to be our main, main character of the the whole show. Um, so it's basically this awful, awful tragedy that begins the show. And each character, each major character in Mr. Sunshine has basically has a backstory like this. Um, this they all come from intense tragedy. Um, not all of them, but most of them have this backstory where they were very lowly, um, kind of in positions in the class system of Joseon um, that they have no hope of ever being anything different other than a slave or a butcher or whatever. Um, and it's an interesting idea that because of these tumultuous times, they have other opportunities and they end up being quite powerful people in their own ways. But anyway, this little boy, Eugene, manages to run away. A few people along the way kind of help him, but it's it's like it's awful. His family's dead and he ends up stowing away and ending up in America, where obviously he faces all sorts of adverse, adversity, adversity, I think, you know, troubles. <laughs> Let's just say troubles. <laughs> he has a really fucking tough time um, and he kind of gets taken under the wing of a missionary. But, you know, life is hard and he grows up and eventually he ends up joining um, the military as a Marine. And he takes part in a few of the I don't know much about that period of American history, but some um, American skirmishes, I think they said with the Spanish. So apparently they were fighting the Spanish. Um and eventually he gets sent as a, I can't remember what rank he is at this point, but he's quite high up him and his good friend, um, who is played by, I guess, an American actor. I don't know. I thought this guy was great. Um, the, the actor's name was David McInnes. Um, so he plays a guy called Kyle Moore, who's an American actor. Um, I might point out that there is a lot of like English speaking in the show and it's one of the only times I've watched a Korean drama where it wasn't like cringy. It was actually really, really good. Um, so the boy grown up is played by the actor Lee Byung-hun, who is a massive, massive Korean movie star. And also I think that even people who've never watched a Korean movie or Korean drama in their life will probably recognize this guy because he's in a lot of American movies too. Um, he's slightly older um, and, you know, so he's been around for a long time and he's just you know he's mega like the fact that he's even in a k-drama is kind of crazy in of itself i think um so when he's grown up eugene obviously in american sounds like eugene so his name is eugene Choi, and he gets sent back to joseon um you know to the legation because everyone around the world is sort of sending their militaries and their officials and their politicians in to see what the land is, you know, like what the lay of the land is and what they can get out of it. Um, because there's such a, I guess there's such a tumultuous point in history with Japan really rising up and a lot of different countries, including America and England, um, you know, giving Japan a lot of money to um, fight against Russia. So there's like all these kind of crazy, complicated interests happening. And unfortunately for Joseon, it is a 
a smaller, weaker nation that is just getting crushed underfoot by all the big powers of the day. Um, so yeah, that's um, Eugene Choi's kind of backstory. And when he gets back, um, he, he's got a bit of a mission and his mission is to assassinate an American um, who is kind of doing dirty dealings and stuff like that. And when he's trying to assassinate this American guy, um, he comes across a different assassin on the roof and they kind of have this, um, you know, running around and eventually they recognize each other and on the street they both smell gunpowder on each other. And this other assassin turns out to be this young noble woman um, played by the actress Kim Terry, um, who is also a movie actress. Um, she's not really a K-drama actress at all. I've seen her in a really, again, a mega big budget award-winning um, movie that she was in, which I might point out was like a mad, like I didn't really know it at the time, but it was, it turned out to be an erotic movie. So I've seen her like, I've seen her pretty naked. So that was weird. Um, <laughs> but anyway, she plays, she, she's so good in this. Um, I really, really like this actress. She's very, She's very small, but she's so commanding. Like she has a lot of presence. Um, so she plays this young noble woman could go a shin. So go a shin to me is this utterly fascinating character because she, you know, she lives this very cloistered life, um, but she wants more. She wants to know what's going on in the world. She wants to know how the world is changing. She wants to understand every piece of new technology, but she's also really, really wants to understand the instability of the country, the politics and what it means for her country. But I think it's this really interesting push and pull with Aishin because as a woman, she is forbidden to do so many things and she's constantly pushing against that. Like she she doesn't understand why she's not as good as men. So she ends up finally, you know, getting her grandpa, who's part of the underground resistance, um, you know, like a patriotic movement pro Joseon, um, to allow her to have a gunner as a mentor and be taught how to, you know, be a sniper basically for the righteous army. Um, and so she's, she's completely dedicated to all these things. And she's very pro the idea that yes, she can do those things just as much as any man can. But then there's this incredible kind of flip side to this where she, and I remember the first part of the drama, I kept thinking about it. You know, she's constantly carried around in a palaquin by, they're not slaves anymore because this is after the Garbo reform. So this is after the peasant uprising, the Donghak, like peasant revolution that eventually led to slavery being abolished. So even so, I guess a lot of things haven't fully changed. You know, they still have servants and the servants still, you know, treat them like royalty. And I presume maybe the servants get like a little bit of money now instead of them being indentured for life to this, you know, the noble family. So it's really interesting to see her talking about equality, I suppose, in terms of men and women and why can't she fight for her country, but then see her having her hair brushed by her maid and getting carried around and ordering her people around. And so she is beloved by the Joseon people in Hansong. Like they adore her because she's kind and she treats everyone with kindness. And even so, like she does treat people well and with kindness 
But at the same time, it is so ingrained in her that she is noble, that there's still a lot of that. How dare you think you can talk to me? How dare you touch me? You know, don't you know who I am? So there is still this level of, and it's not her fault, but a level of ingrained superiority that obviously has been instilled with her in her since her birth. Um, and I just find this whole idea really fascinating. You've got, say, a righteous army and you've got scholars and really like high up noblemen part of it. But you've also got um, former slaves and soldiers and like really no name sort of lowly peasant people. And there's still this level of um you know, looking up to the nobles, even though really everyone's fighting for the same thing. And I mean, I guess this, the classes are very slowly, slowly coming undone and unraveling at this point. But, you know, it's still so soon after um, slavery had existed for, you know, over 500 years. So I get that the mindsets are just so ingrained. And I, I thought it was really, really clever commentary on all that kind of that idea that it's it's not even Asian's fault. You know, she has just been brought up in this world. Of course, she thinks that she's better. And I love the way the drama then addresses this. Um, so I guess in terms of the story, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting drama because when I look back on it, like a lot does happen, but at the same time, it's very, it can be, it's not slow as in like you get bored, but it's slow as in there isn't just one overarching plot. There's not one aim. It's just like people changing and discovering things. And, um, you know, there's different enemies throughout the drama instead of one big bad. I, I mean, other than, you know, the Japanese army being the big bad. But for instance, you know, at first there's um, kind of a Korean traitor I suppose who's pro-Japanese and he's sort of the big problem that everyone's trying to take down and then there's a different kind of uh, pro-Japanese traitor and then there's like a Japanese military high up official and you know so like there's kind of different focus points as antagonists which I really really like because it keeps things moving and then also I really liked it because you don't have this problem that a lot of dramas that are trying to be hardcore and you know realistic and gritty have where you can never ever ever kill the enemy like you always miss or you always just don't kill them for some dumb reason and then they survive to the end just because you need your villain to survive to the end. And I think this show did a really good job of sidestepping that. So people die in this show and they die when you don't expect it. And, you know, someone that is set up as the most villainous, awful villain ever just suddenly gets like popped off and assassinated on the street. And you're like, whoa, like that's hardcore. Like the main, you know, the main character, Eugene Choi does that um, at one point, three quarters of the way through the drama. And I really thought the guy that he killed, this Japanese official, was going to be, um, his name in the show is Takashi Mori. You know, I thought he was going to be a big adversary to them. And then he's just, he's dead. And it's so intense. So, like, it definitely keeps you guessing and excited and just so invested as it goes. Um, so the show is really... There isn't like these huge plot things. I think that there's characters and it's about the characters. It's about how they grew up and how that informs who they are now, how they interact with each other and what they decide to do with the fact that Joseon is slowly shattering apart. Um, so Aishin, obviously, you know, her loyalties are very strong. She knows what she wants and she cannot kind of stand away from the 
you know, from doing the right thing, I suppose. And the show very quickly sets out, I guess, its themes in terms of there's a lot of talk of um, Asian learning English and the first words she learns is literally like gun, glory and sad ending. Like, so you know what the themes are, you know where the show is going to go. Um, but of course, she meets Eugene Choi, who's this American military man. And at first, they're sort of circling each other. They both know that they did, you know, were involved in this assassination, but it's very secret. And she begins to think of him as a comrade, as an ally. And she is very, very interested in him, I think. And he's a little bit more wary. And over time, they fall in love. Um, and I really, I really liked all of that. I felt it was realistic. Um, I, I really liked their romance. I don't know if I was like heart pounding about it. Like it was, it didn't make me swoon like crazy, but I felt like their romance made sense. I understood why they fell in love and it, it worked for me. Um, but of course it gets to a point, you know, he understands who she is and he accepts all these different parts of her. But there's this amazing scene where, you know, she, they're, they're, they're kind of, um, it's obvious that they're in love. They're, you know, spending time together and having all this stuff where she's talking about, you know, she's wearing men's suits sometimes when she goes out so she can do her, um, you know, righteous army missions and things. And so there's this element of her having this level of freedom and being able to walk alongside him and stuff like that. You know, this idea of equality, even as a woman, that she can do everything he can do. And then she's always pressing him, you know, what's his backstory? Like, how did he end up in America? And he says to her, you know, there are, it's this beautiful scene out on the ice on this river. And he's like, if I tell you, you won't look at me the same way. You won't want me anymore. Like, do you, are you sure you want to know? And of course, she's like, yeah, of course I want to know. And so he tells her that he was a slave of a noble family, some noble family, exactly like hers, and that that noble family murdered his parents and he ran away and the slave hunters couldn't catch him and he got out of the country. And it was such an interesting, intense moment because I was so positive that Aishin was going to say, that doesn't matter. Like, I love you. <laughs> I love you the way that you are. What does it matter if you're a slave? And she doesn't. She is completely in shock like she falls over she can't look at him she can't touch him it is such a powerful thing and it was so unexpected for me but then I really really love that the drama did this I think you know it obviously doesn't pay paint Aishin in a very nice light um that she was so shocked um by the fact that this man she's in love with used to be a slave, that he's low birth. Um, it, it makes her look terrible. And I really love that the drama was willing to go there because it is so realistic. How could a young woman who grows up in the class system and structure that she has and being told every day of her life that common people and lowly people and slaves are less they're less than her. They're less human than she is. They, you know, they are only exist to serve her. And it's not anyone's fault. And it's certainly not her fault, but she's ingrained with these messages about other people with a sense of superiority. Um, and it's, and she doesn't use that superiority in a mean way. She doesn't treat, you know, lowly people like lower classes nastily, but it's such a shock to her this moment because she realizes that 
she has this prejudice in her heart. And she, at one point, you know, when her and Eugene Choi meet up again, she's crying and she's so hurt and wounded. I think more about the fact that this shocked her than about the fact that he actually used to be a slave. And she cries and says, she thought she was a different kind of noble person to the others. She thought she was different to them. She thought that she was more open-minded and more about equality. And this moment where he told her this secret and she reacted so badly has made her, I guess, ashamed of herself. It wounds her because she doesn't like how she reacted. And I just I just thought it was such a clever piece of writing and character development, particularly because I'd spent all the episodes up until that point really interested in the fact that she was so, you know, pro-Josin and pro-women um, being equal and yet was getting carried around like a princess, you know, getting worshipped basically by everyone around her. And yes, she's kind to them, but she's still getting worshipped. And so I really loved how she kind of wakes up to this fact. Um, and she says to Eugene Choi, like, I just made an assumption that you were from nobility, you know? And the fact that he isn't tells her a lot about herself, but it also tells her a lot about her beliefs. You know, if you think that someone who's a slave could never be as smart or as intelligent or as powerful or as, you know, uh, decisive or amazing or whatever, it's not true because look at Eugene Choi. You know, he's got a very powerful position. He's a very confident, cool guy. He's completely in control of himself. He makes, you know, he always does the right thing. He makes amazing decisions. Like he's an incredible man. He's someone that she's fallen in love with. She thinks he's that amazing. And yet he used to be a slave. So what does that mean about all the other people who used to be slaves? So yeah, I'm, I'm just getting like <laughs> really like into it, but I, I just thought it was really good writing. Um, and it was such a wonderful sort of internal conflict for her to understand this awful thing about herself. And so this awful thing about Aishin brings me to the next character I want to talk about, which is Gu Dong-mei, uh, played by the actor Yu Yeon-suk. So I'm not going to lie. I was like obsessed with everything about Gu Dong-mei. Um, I was obsessed with Yu Yeon-suk. I was obsessed with his performance, like, and Yes, I'm just going to say it. He is sexy as fuck. Like he is so amazing in this. Like it's really great. But aside from all of the fangirly stuff um, where, yes, he is now my screen, uh, my phone screensaver. But aside from that stuff, in terms of the writing and this character, it's really interesting and how it fits. Um, so Gu Dong Mei is completely and utterly in love with Aishin. Um, but he is not the kind of man she would ever look at twice. He is rough and frightening and basically a gang leader. But we slowly throughout the drama, we get this piece of history. So we find out that Dongmei used to be a butcher's son. So I am very fascinated. So within the Korean class system during the Joseon dynasty, there were different levels. So there's the young bun, which is obviously the nobleman. There's some sort of middle class of which I've forgotten what it is. And then there's the chon, chonmin. So the chonmin is like the low slaves. So slaves, gisang. Um, and the other things is animal skinners and like grave diggers. So Dongmei would be like an animal skinner or like a, you know, a butcher. 
That's the family he's grown, been born into. And butchers have to be, you know, their kids have to be butchers and they are the kind of low in the class system that other peasants can spit on them in the street, can treat them badly. I remember watching um, another Korean drama, I think it was a 2019 Korean drama um, called Nok Du Flower, which is all about the Dong Huk rebellion, peasant uprising, the Garbo reform and the abolishment of slavery. And in that drama, there are quite a few butchers um, who join into the peasant revolution. And they're talking about how they're so lowly that they don't even, you know, they're not even given real names. They're called like awful things like, you know, like dog or, you know, just stuff like that. So there is like a level of intense discrimination against them specifically, even within the lowest of the low class that exists in Joseon society. So Dongmei has come from like literally the bottom, bottom of the barrel. Um, Gisang were also considered unbelievably lowly, but it's an interesting kind of distinction with them because they were one of the only like lower classes who were allowed to wear silk. And also they were very highly educated. So they were kind of in a different class of their own, even though they were considered lowly, but butchers, they are like the filth beneath your feet kind of low. It's really awful. So Dongmei grows up as the son of this couple who are butchers and he grows up seeing his parents, you know, just humiliated on a daily basis and treated like absolute shit. And he comes home one day and he realizes, um, I don't know if he fully does realize, but he's his mother is like just getting treated like shit. She's getting raped and stuff by anybody. Like everyone's just like, it's, it's really awful and just terrible. And Dongmei gets home and his mother is covered in blood and holding a knife. And she basically threatens to kill him unless he runs away. And as far as Dongmei, he's just like, what? Like, why? Why? And he's crying and calling out for his mother. And eventually she tries to slice him. And so he gets furious, like filled with anger and he runs off. But it turns out that his mother obviously was about to get raped or had been raped and had murdered a guy or some men. And the father and the mother both get, you know, bashed to death by some noble family. And Dongmei is like hiding around the corner. He can't get out because everyone's looking for him. And then Aishin turns up. So this is when they're a lot younger. Aishin is like a little girl sitting in her little beautiful palaquin covered in silk and very clean and lovely and all these servants around her. And she opens her little palaquin window and she sees Gu Dongmei behind this stone wall and he stares at her and he's covered in blood and dirt and he's crying and he's been half bashed up. And then the next scene is we see that he is sitting in her palaquin across from her and she is getting him out she's going to save his life and so when we flash forward to the future at first you think that's it there's that's their backstory the backstory is that she saves his life and now he is forever in love with her but little by little we get to understand Dongmei a lot more and I thought this was really interesting um you know he's a side character so he's not given as much development as like Aishin or Eugene Choi but there's still it's just very interesting I think he's quite a different sort of character and there was a lot to sort of pick apart with who he is um so he now like as an adult he has gone off to Japan um he has sort of been adopted by a big 
I'm sure it's not Yakuza. They don't use the word Yakuza, <laughs> but like a big sort of gang organization, like mobster shit kind of stuff in Japan. And he's been adopted as the son and he's been um, put as a head of, it's called Musen Society, been put at, at the head of the Joseon chapter or the Hansong chapter. So basically he's a gangster and he has like 10 samurai walking behind him. He dresses in like Japanese samurai outfit and he's clearly been like trained in that sort of martial arts. Um, and he carries swords around with him and he's just like literally scary as fuck. Like he is a frightening dude. Um, and he goes around and he kills loads of people. And so when he and Aishin see each other again, after this long, you know, however long since they last saw each other, um, basically he overhears some Japanese guys who are, you know, just like, I guess, common dudes who've come over to Hansong to try and make their fortune, like dock workers or whatever, talking, they're looking at Asian on the street and they're talking about her and they're saying really awful things about, you know, that she's just, you know, it, really awful things about her being a Joseon woman and how they, the things they want to do to her, let's say like bad stuff. So Dong Mei basically he fucks them up. He kills both of them on the street. He's covered in dripping blood. And Aishin sees this. And to her, she sees a feral, disgusting, lowly human being who has sunk into, you know, the mire of gangs. And like, you know, that's how she views him. And obviously she doesn't know that he was protecting her honor or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so Dongmei is really angry. He's just a really angry, frightening, sharp, like scary guy, the whole drama. Um, and every time he's clearly in love with Asian and he wants to protect her, but at the same time, he like, it's like every time he gets nearer, he also hurts her like with his words. It's like, he's constantly trying to wound her. And I really like, I just couldn't understand. Like if he loves her, why is he, you know, why is he always trying to hurt her? Why is he always making her so hate him so much? And eventually we kind of flash back to that little scene in the palaquin when they were children. And there's a little bit more to it than what we initially get shown. And I loved this. So you know, he kind of says like, why are you helping me? And she's like, well, you know, Confucius said that all men, are, you know, all lives are worth something, you know, that all men deserve to live a life. And Gudong Mei just kind of like laughs at her. He leans over and he's just like, he's, he's fucked up. Like his whole face, he's got blood and everything. And he grabs the, the edge of her hanbok, like her pink skirt, her silks, and he lifts it to his mouth and uses it to wipe off like all the blood off his mouth. And he just looks razor sharp and scary and says to her, like, you are nothing, but you know, like a, a naive noble girl, like in your stupid, I can't even remember his exact words, but basically, you know, like he just, he rips her apart with his words. And later on, we find that, you know, with Asian's whole internal struggle of realizing that she has these deep set prejudices and isn't really as about equality as she thought, she constantly in her mind comes back to that moment where Dong Mei said that to her, where he recognized the thing about herself that she hates the most and wishes wasn't real and for many, many years didn't believe was real, which is why... She kind of loathes him, to be honest, because he, as she, she says at some point, he was the first person to like stab her, basically. And he says, and he's like, when he's talking about the, that experience of meeting her, that 
she was the first person that he ever slashed. Like he wounded her in the exact way that he knew would hurt her most. And now he's like, he's a seasoned killer, but he considers that like his first kind of experience of hurting somebody, I suppose. Um, And so eventually you kind of figure out that he is in love with her and he knows that even worse than her not liking him is that she doesn't think about him. She doesn't care about him. She doesn't care if he's alive or if he's dead. She doesn't think about him if she doesn't see him for days. Like, she is so indifferent to Dong Mei that his reaction to that because of the kind of frightening person that he is, is to constantly lash out at her. Because if she hates him, if she completely hates him, then that is an emotion that she feels towards him. So it it took me a long time to understand that that's what he was trying to do, you know, because he's so not very nice to her, but not, I don't know, he's not mean. He's just like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's such a like destructive thing because you feel like she doesn't really care about him. So he's just like destroying himself mainly from all these interactions. But it, it was really, really interesting. And I really... I quite liked that experience of not having all the information and not understanding why he was interacting with her in this strange way if he's supposed to love her, you know, and then slowly understanding that he has this idea that he needs to make some sort of mark on her and he'll never, ever gain her love or her respect because of who he is. So it has to be through this other destructive way. So yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, So I loved him. I loved everything about that whole storyline. Um, so I guess I'll tell you, there's other characters as well. Um, there's a fantastic hotel owner played by the actress Kim Min Jung called Hina. Um, she is wonderful. She like dresses in um, Japanese traditional clothes or in English clothes. And she's actually Korean, but she got sold off by her evil dad to a Japanese husband who it looks like she murdered. And now she's a very rich widow. And I, she made my heart ache so intensely by the end of this drama. I really like her. She's very badass. She's very cool. She's very like in control and just a really interesting character. And then the other kind of main character is Byun Yo Han. Um, that's the actor's name. Uh, so he was in Six Flying Dragons and he plays a character called Hee Sung. And Hee Sung is sort of like, I think he's a little bit more of a side character. He's like the smiley, rich playboy. I sort of didn't buy his love in quite the same way. Like everyone basically in the show is in love with Aishin. And him, I was like, I get that he likes her, you know, and that he thinks she's super hot. And he thought his fiance was going to be not hot. So, but I don't know if I bore, like completely bought the idea that he is so in love with her, but I did buy the idea that she changes his life, that her impact on him is enormous in making him into a very different kind of person. Um, or And so these, these like, what's that, five leads um, basically all just interact with each other. And that's really, I guess, where the show comes from, like, you know, how they slowly change in terms of their relationships and how the characters change over the years and how they are then informed by the bigger picture things going on in Joseon at that time. And I feel like I could like literally talk about this drama forever. I'm 
so obsessed. It's just got under my skin in such an extreme way. I literally want to write a book with like Dong Mei as my main character, like so badly. <laughs> Maybe I'll get onto that at some point. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the history here. I think I'm going to talk about that a little bit in my random thing at the end of this episode. Um, and I'll just give you a little bit of a brief overview because I find that stuff very interesting. So I guess we're up to my fangirl section. <laughs> so I do want to talk about Dongmen more because I'm just, I'm obsessed and that's how I feel. And I am not going to apologize, I guess. <laughs> I am kind of sorry. Um, I just wanted to kind of say some stuff, I suppose, that I thought about. So like Yu Yun Sok is the actor who plays this character. Um, I saw him in, what is it? Reply 1994, um, which came out in 2013. I'm pretty sure I saw that as it was airing and he plays the second male lead in that. And he is like this very clean cut, very sweet looking, very cute. Um, and I was obsessed. Like I totally shipped his side of that love triangle. Um, I had my heart crushed by this man back then in 2013, like in such an extreme way. It was such a like visceral sort of choosing the wrong male lead kind of a moment for me. It like murdered me. So I loved him. Um, and I remember I kind of was like waiting to see what he'd do next. And he did um, uh, another drama called, I think, Warm and Cozy. And it, I tried to watch it. It was shit. I hated it. I just hated it and that was a few years after I think so I waited ages and then he was in something crap that I didn't like and he played like a total asshole in it and so I just forgot about him and I guess went off him I didn't go off him but I just didn't follow him around anymore and so from my experience of him playing Chilbongi from Reply 1994, I never in a zillion fucking years would have picked him for this role of Gudong Mei. Like he's such a sweetheart who's all quiet and sweet in Reply 1994. And as Dong Mei, he is like, it's so different. And I just, I would never have thought that he could do it. Um, but there's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, like, I guess, in terms of performance that I particularly liked, because I think that a character like this is such a standout for me, like it's on a lot of different levels. So I think it's written really well. There's one scene in particular that I adored, but there's a lot of it. You know, I just really liked the writing around it. Um, I love the costume. It was really cool to see all the samurai stuff. Um, you know, I watch a lot of K-dramas. I don't really watch Japanese historical dramas. So that was just really interesting. Um, samurai outfits look really cool. <laughs> um, but I think the performance too for me was really interesting in the way that Yu Yeon-suk chose to perform the character was not what I would have expected. So if you think of a really, really frightening, scary gang leader who murders people, you, me personally, I would think of someone who's very steely and doesn't, doesn't smile, you know, someone really serious and steely and frightening all the time. Like, I'm, I guess I'm thinking in terms of a writer right now as well. Like if I was going to write that kind of a character, um, you know, say as a male lead in a book that I was writing, I would never have thought to make him smile as much as Gu Dongmei does in this drama. And yet Dongmei, when he smiles, it's, they're not real smiles. He smiles all the time when he talks, but it's like, 
So when I write books um, with like, you know, scary, badass kind of male lead characters, I always really like to say like razor sharp, like razor sharp smile, that kind of thing. And I feel like this is one of my first times in real life seeing someone and being like, oh, like that's literally what is happening. So he's smiling, but it is scary. Like he looks so sharp and frightening and you, there's just so much like malice behind it all the time. So anyway, I'm fangirling. It is true. That's what I'm doing. But it was great. It's such a good performance. And then on top of that, he does another thing that I thought was super, super cool. So he calls everyone Nauri. So I think you guys, if you've watched any historical dramas, will recognize, you know, when when people are talking to higher class people, they're like, oh, Yongam or Degam or Nauri, you know, like, yeah. So Dongmei, every time he talks to Eugene Choi, he's like, he calls him Nauri. Um, every time he talks to any sort of official person or anyone that he comes near. So Nauri is a, a title of respect. And I thought it was really interesting because Dongmei is is saying all the right things. Like he calls everyone by this respectful name, but it sounds so mocking. When he says it, it sounds like he's saying the opposite of what he's saying. And he just does that with his voice. And I thought that was so clever. So I guess I was just really blown away by the whole performance because I never would have picked him to play a character so sharp and dangerous and frightening and to do it with such a level of, you know, that kind of sharp mockingness all the time. It was just really, really interesting. Um, so yes, I, I love him. <laughs> I do. I can't help it. All right. So I think that that's probably enough of that fangirling stuff. So I just want to talk really quickly about the end of the drama, um, before I finish this up. So not like I haven't been giving spoilers all along, but major spoilers. Um, the end of this drama is so fucking tragic and basically mostly everyone dies. Um, it is hardcore. So it basically finishes um, Aishin, you know, Eugene Choi sacrifices himself to get Aishin out of the country. And it is so sad. And Aishin getting away is so sad because she just has to live as a rebel and, you know, she lost her love and it's just, it's, it's so depressing. Um, the other characters, um, Hee-san, you know, the, the kind of smiley playboy second male lead, he starts a, a newspaper at the end and he decides to, you know, tell the truth in it. And obviously that gets the attention of the occupation and he gets interrogated to death, which means he gets bashed to death. And it is unbelievably sad. It's also particularly sad because this takes place, I think, by this point in the drama, we're looking at about 1907, I think. And yes, he died to spread word of the truth but at the same time the occupation doesn't end till 1943 and it's just oh, 45 sorry it's just it's so sad um another death that killed me um was the hotel owner um she I wasn't sure if I liked her at first she grew on me so intensely she has a lot of scenes with Gu Dong Mei they're really good friends and um you just sort of I don't know 
she's always like says she's in love with Eugene Choi. She's always trying to get Eugene Choi's attention. And then she kind of stops after a while. And I sort of forgot about that because I didn't really feel that, I suppose. She just didn't really know him or talk to him. I don't know why she liked him so much, I suppose. But her and Dong Wei are quite close and they really help each other. They always come to each other's rescue. And I really liked their relationship in this drama which does feel platonic, I suppose, until the very end when she is dying and she basically confesses her love to him. And it is just the most sad, soul-destroying thing ever because he's someone who is so fixated on Aishin that he can't see anything else. And she, you know, they could have been really good together, I suppose. Like, I don't know. It really, really broke my heart that she'd been in love with him for so long and had never really said anything but constantly always been there and helping him and it was just oh my gosh it ripped me apart and then Dong Mei's ending was completely fucked so I forgot to mention my one of my favorite scenes in the whole drama um which I was supposed to mention in my fangirl section but we'll just do this here anyway <laughs> um basically Asian goes with Eugene Choi to Japan and she's goes there on a mission with her um you know, the Righteous Army stuff. And she gets into a major piece of trouble over there. And Dong Mei turns up just in time. And there's just this incredible, like, collection of scenes where he, he sort of helps her. Um, you know, he does save her, but at the same time, she is a total badass. Like, she's shooting people left, right, and center and fighting and surviving. Like, she's not a damsel in distress. She is, like, um, a freedom fighter in a moment of near death. And he whips in and saves her, and it's amazing. And he gets wounded a little bit on his arm. And he brings her to a safe house. And I really, really, like the writing in this scene, it's just like one of those, it's just perfect. I guess it's like, it's so pitch perfect for me as well. Like I know, I'm very aware that it's very to my taste and the kind of historical stuff that I like. Um, but the whole conversation, the scene, it's so romantic. It's so filled with tension. And the only thing that isn't romantic about it is that Asian just doesn't really give a fuck about him. It's so sad. <laughs> you can tell like this moment for him is like, it's big, you know, it's so huge. And it's so sad at the end, you know, he can't, she kind of, it's the first moment I guess they've had, they've talked to each other where she's realized or she hasn't just been pushing back and basically saying cruel things to him because she hates him so much and he's also not saying horrible things to her so they actually have a conversation and it's unbelievably moving and you know she kind of tends to you know wraps up his arm with a piece of I don't know skirt or some shit and um it's so intense for him and like she tells him you know survive Uh, I want to see you again like back in Joseon and he basically says like you always do this you always save me and it's like this idea that he's just like his life isn't worth anything and he doesn't believe it's worth anything and just like there's these tiny little seeds of hope that he gets from her every few years and they just fuel him onwards for more years it's it's actually like really sad um anyway if you've seen the drama, perhaps you will have noticed that collection of scenes. I just thought it was so good. I was just like, I think I watched it like four times. I'll probably go back and watch it again. It was so good. Anyway, Gudong Mei, after, you know, he saves Aishin in Japan, he just gets, he's totally wounded. He's totally fucked up. He gets set upon by a whole bunch of Japanese samurai because he's basically gone against his whole Musin society. He's just not doing what he meant, he's meant to be doing. And it's because he's got caught up with helping Aishin and helping Eugene Choi and sort of getting a little bit too pro-Joseon and not enough pro-Musin society. 
Um, so he fights like off a million samurai, gets slashed up, falls into the ocean, sinks to the bottom of the sea, <laughs> and then three years later randomly is hanging out in Manchuria in an opium den. And it flashes forward and I'm like, what? How the fuck did he get there? So this is the only part of the whole drama where I felt the writing was it was like they were, I think the writer was just trying to wrap things up at the end. So we get this flash forward three years and, you know, Eugene Choi comes back to Han Song and so does Dong Mei and they just happen to like find each other randomly at the exact same moment. You know, like it's just a little bit coincidental. At the same time, I liked it. I did like it just because um, I wanted to see all the characters together again. Um, but I think realistically, if the show had been maybe had done what, like story-wise, Gudong may probably should have just drowned in the ocean at that point where he falls in. It doesn't really make sense for him to come back three years later. Like, I don't know why he waited a whole three years. Um, it just doesn't really fit. It just felt like more like story machination, you know, like a, a story structure thing because the writer wanted these people to come back together three years later than anything that made sense in terms of the character development and um, who he was like. And also like, I didn't really get it. He's like really sick. He only has like specifically 10 days left or something. And he's on opium and he's ill. I don't know if he's like wounded from three years ago or if he's like got tuberculosis or some shit. Cause he's like coughing up blood. I don't know if I just missed something there. But anyway, his death is awful. Like he waits at the dock and this ship comes in with all these Japanese samurai and they've got his good mate who's his friend and that guy's dead and he's dying. And then he fights them, they stab him up and he lies on the ground and he's just completely covered in blood and he looks at the sky and he thinks about Asian and he's just like thinking it's, it's so fucking sad, like, because she doesn't even know he dies. She doesn't care that he dies. No one cares that he dies. No one even knows. And then his fucking dead body gets dragged along behind a fucking horse. I was so distressed, like, so distressed because I loved this man so much. And then I had to watch his dead body get pulled along by a horse. And then on top of that, no one even knew or was sad that he died. It, anyway... I'd say that's enough of me going on about that. Um, so yes, freaking gut-wrenching ending. And I know I'm going on about Dong Mei like a lot, but it was for every element. And then there is obviously, on top of the fact of all the character death stuff that is so painful, one of the things that I think makes you ache even more is um, the understanding of the history, that these sort of things are real. Like these people all sacrificed their lives for their country. And it is, it make it really, really hurts watching this show. It really hits home what an awful period in Korean history it was. And I, I think, you know, I definitely cried as each character died. Absolutely. But I think I cried even more just for the sadness of that history. It really, really creeps beneath your skin. So I'm going to finish this discussion here now, but I'm going to talk about the history in a second. Um, but I, I would say that's probably enough of me going on and on about the show. I loved this show. It is so good. Every character is so interesting. Every scene is so interesting. The action is exciting. It looks beautiful. The costumes are incredible. Um, I loved it. I thought it was written so well. I know I complained a little bit about some of the coincidences in the last, you know, like 
couple episodes, but it doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. Everything else is done so perfectly and so emotionally and matters so much. Um, this is probably one of the best dramas I've ever watched. I think it was absolutely just arresting and impactful. Um, I definitely say if you haven't, if you can handle the pain, um, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's so good. And as much as I talk about the pain and the tragedy, it's not like the whole experience is like that. It's just the end. The rest of it is wonderful. And um, I forgot to mention there is this fantastic amount of very gentle humor in this show that I loved. It's not like witty kind of banter characters. It's like this very gentle, realistic humor in the way that I think people really do relate to each other. You know, like we're not all comedians, but we all make little funny jokes at each other and some of them are a bit silly. And I really loved that realistic touch in this show. Um, you know, there's also these beautiful moments. I really loved it um, whenever Eugene Choi, Gu Dongmei and um, Hee-sung, the kind of playboy fiancé, all turn up together and go drinking in the bar. And like the relationships in this show are really, really good. And I think that's what keeps you just so invested. You know, even the ones that aren't romantic, just the way people change and grow and develop and relate to each other is so moving. So I will stop blathering on about it now <laughs> um if you watched it please tell me what you think and if you loved Gu Dongmei as much as me please let me know <laughs> I feel so heartbroken um this drama is amazing um I really hope that if you've seen it that you loved it as much as I did and if you haven't I hope that you will give it a go it's worth your time um so that's it from me on my discussion on Mr. Sunshine Okay, so it's time for my random thing. I'm going to talk about a bit of history, but I just want to start off um, with some quotes from the drama. So this is just a little, very short quote that I, it's, it's um, someone sing, I guess they're lyrics actually, from Asian's grandpa's funeral. So everyone's walking through the streets and one of the servants is singing this song and here's the lyrics. Who will bring news of the wind and rain from all corners of the country? The typhoon caused strong waves, how many were drenched by them. We come to this world empty-handed and leave the world empty-handed. We poor human beings take pity on us all. I thought it was very moving and sad funeral song. And then the other little quote I wanted to mention is um, Aishin is explaining about the Righteous Army, uh, which is, you know, the freedom fighter organization that she's joined. And she says that, you know, they all don, you know, masks, they get rid of their names, they become, you know, just fighters. And she says that, you know, these people will live without a name and a face. But if Joseon survives and its history persists, their names will be remembered by others. Um, and I just thought it's such an interesting way to show her mentality around what it is that she is so driven to do. You know, she is trying to make these positive changes for the future and she is well aware that it is not for her to reap the benefits of that. And she says at the beginning of the drama, you know, that she feels sorry for her grandfather who loves her and wants her to be a noble woman and get married and live happily, but she wants to be a flame. 
and she wants to burn brightly and then she wants to wilt. And the sad thing is that she is so loved by all these people in her life that they all get drawn in towards that same ending and none of them care about Joseon in the way that she does, but they all end up living that dream of hers, you know. Eugene Choi, Hee Sung and Dong Mei and even the hotel owner, all of them relate to her and other than the hotel owner who does care about Joseon, you know, those three men are very different. They don't really care about the future of Joseon, but they care about the future of her. Well, Hee Sung, I guess, cares about Joseon, but Dong Mei and Eugene Choi don't. And yet they do exactly what she said. They live as flames, they burn brightly and then they wilt and it is very sad. But like I was saying before, you cannot set a drama in this time period and not make it a tragedy. So here's some history. So just in terms of the timeline, I wanted to explain a little bit. Um, I'm just going to be really quick. So obviously, if you want to actually know, you should probably look it up and not listen to me because I am an amateur historian. <laughs> um, but I do have a book uh, that I've been reading a little bit about. Um, so I mentioned before that, so in 1894, that is when the Donghak Peasantry War or the Gabo Reform happens, and it's also the first Shino-Japanese War. So this drama, obviously it starts before that. It starts when Eugene is a little kid, so slavery still exists. But in 1894, after the Gabo Reform, because of that peasant revolution, um, slavery is abolished, um, which is a pretty amazing, incredible thing. But unfortunately, that peasant revolution destabilized the country and put so much pressure on the government that they invited foreign powers into the country. So it, as sad as this is, it absolutely did lead to, um, I guess, foreign powers staking their claim in Joseon, which eventually leads to the Japanese occupation. So in 1895, um, the assassination of Queen Min occurs. So in Mr. Sunshine, we see the king, I think his name's Gojong from memory, King Gojong, and he decides to, um, he, basically he wants to compete on equal footing and show that Joseon is as mighty as Japan. So he decides to rename the Joseon dynasty as an empire and he renames himself as emperor instead of king. His wife, I mean, I think in history, King Gojong is generally known to be I don't want to say a weak king. I probably don't know enough about it to like make a call like that. But I think that's the general kind of consensus around him. And his wife, Queen Min, was considered to be very, very fearsome and a formidable political player, which is, of course, why in 1895 she gets assassinated, which is referred to a little bit at the beginning of the drama. So what happens is a the Japanese do it but they do it in a way that they condemn the assassin and, you know, punish the assassin and basically pretend that it wasn't a government thing. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty intense. So in 1897, was the establishment of the great Han Empire. So that's, you know, when uh, King Gojong, I think his name is, uh, just, you know, calls himself emperor. Um, and then 1904, which is when a lot of this drama is set as well, is when the Russo-Japanese War begins. So the interesting thing about that war, which is between Japan, obviously, and Russia, is that Joseon is absolutely caught in the middle. It's all happening in the, in the sea off Joseon. Um, and... 
There are a lot of foreign stakes. Um, it's mentioned in the drama a few times that the Americans are funding Japan. The English also are. So I just wanted to, um, yeah, I guess. So 1905, right, is the, in the drama, I think we see is when the, um, the Japanese force Korean officials to sign like a treaty, basically. And it's absolutely the, the first step to, you know, after that is the abolishment of the Korean military, which we see in the drama. And it's just like this slow creep invasion. You know, it's not like a, an all out war. Exactly. It's this just slow pressure and pressure and infiltration almost. And because there are so many Korean high up um, officials that side with the Japanese, like it's just this slow takeover. It's so intense. Um, but it says here, so the Taft-Katsura secret agreement, which happened in July 1905, this secret agreement was made between the United States and Japan. Japan, this is what it said. Japan will refrain from having intentions to attack the Philippines because at this point, Japan is really, you know, beginning to take over different countries all throughout Asia. So America has obviously staked a deal with Japan to keep their own territory of the Philippines. Um, so Japan will refrain from having intentions to attack the Philippines, which is now occupied by the United States. On the other hand, the United States recognizes the legitimacy of Japan's rendering of Korea as one of its protectorates in the light of recent results of the Russian of the Russo-Japanese war. So this is when Japan wins against Russia. And we know that um, England and America, I think America, but definitely England, um, you know, supported their, their claim against Russia. Um, so yeah, that's, it's just crazy amount of history. Um, so 1910 is the deprivation of sovereignty. So I think that that is when, um, like this is proper occupation. This is when Korea becomes a, like a, well, as it says here, a protectorate of Japan. And then in 1919 is the March 1st movement, which is a hugely famous thing in Korean history, where across the whole country, I think something like 2 million people rose up um, and were doing marches, demonstrations, uh, peaceful ones. And basically there was a lot of um, them getting shot, I guess. So a lot of people died. Um, and it's a very, very famous and awful thing in Korean history. So it's like, it's, you know, like I was saying, this is just a sad, horrifying period of history. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about in this little history thing is a poem that I found in my history book here. So this is called The Poem of Death by Hwang Hyun. And this is something that is being written during this time, you know, written as Joseon, shatters beneath Japanese occupation. So it goes like this. The birds and creatures weep and the mountains frown. The world of roses of Sharon is now ruined. I close my book under the autumn night lamp and reminisce. It isn't easy to live the life of a learned in this world. Um, and beneath that is a picture of um, one of the palace buildings with the Japanese flag <laughs> over it. Um, and I think there's a little bit more I wanted to say. What was it? Oh, this was about the March 1st movement. And then I guess um, the other thing, I seem to have lost my page, unfortunately, um, but it was about the righteous armies, which I think is just, you know, it's pretty extraordinary. 
Um, so we saw in the drama that in 1907 um, was when the Japanese kind of put this pressure to get rid of the Korean military. So the Korean military was just abolished. They didn't even have their own military anymore. Um, and that is when a lot of those soldiers, but also just a lot of peasants and noblemen and scholars went off and joined the righteous armies, which is what we see in the drama. Um, Aishin is running around in the countryside um, with the righteous armies and a lot of them um, fought like guerrilla style warfare or were kind of set up bases in other countries like um, in China as well to fight the cause from outside or try and find funding or guns or weapons because they were so severely under equipped. Um, so in the drama, we see this journalist, I think he's an English journalist from memory in the drama, and he heads off into the hills. Eugene Choi brings him and he takes a photo of the Righteous Army. So if you Google that, that is a real photo, obviously not the one from the drama, but there is a real photo. That was a real article. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really intense to see that black and white photo of that. And I guess the history that I find very interesting about the Righteous Armies in Korea because I've learned a little bit about the Imjin War, which is mentioned quite a lot in Mr. Sunshine, which is the a different lot of Japanese invasions of the Korean Peninsula, which happened in the 1590s, um, where, you know, thousands and thousands of samurai were poured into the country. So in Japanese warfare, apparently, um, it was kind of a... a a thing, I suppose, that if there was, say, two, um, I don't really know how, I don't know much about Japanese history, but like, I guess like warlords or whatever are fighting. As soon as you kill the leader of your opposition, all the peasants, you know, they just, they flip to your side because you won. That's how it works. So when the Japanese samurai invaded um, Korea in these the 1590s and they started taking over the country, they fully expected the peasantry to just succumb and begin, you know, providing food for their supply line to enable them to continue onwards. And that absolutely didn't happen. So even in the 1590s, the Korean military was weak. There was so much corruption in it that a lot of the people in high up positions had bought those positions. So they weren't actually competent. They, they didn't know how to strategize or even, you know, do well at war. They were also under equipped um, compared to the Japanese in terms of weapons. And, you know, the soldiers weren't trained. So a lot of, I mean, there's different reasons, obviously, like huge, amazing reasons about how Korea managed to survive that war. But one of the huge reasons is these righteous armies. So all throughout Korean history, when their country has been invaded, these righteous armies have popped up all over the country. They have this history of it. And it's when the Korean government fails and the military fails, the people rise up and they will rise up holding, you know, the farming tools and bamboo pikes and their hands. And they really, truly made a difference. Um, so yeah, it's unbelievable. I've got like a little weird pie chart here about the righteous army soldiers and it says 79% of them were farmers, you know, these weren't trained people at, at combat and yet the difference that they managed to make is huge. Um, so yeah, it's just a really, I guess, a fascinating piece of history that these righteous armies continually popped up throughout Korean history, I suppose. Um, and learning about the Imjin War is very fascinating with, you know, how much they really did um, 
impact the way that that war went, um, which I'll talk about in the future because I'm going to, I've got a cool book about the Imjin War that I'm slowly reading. So I will get onto that in the future, but I would say that that's well enough history. That's well enough of me rambling on. All right, I'm off. So now it's time for my something I'm loving this week. And because I've rambled so much this episode and it's got so long, um, I'm going to say that what I'm loving this week is um, Dongmei, Gu Dongmei from Mr. Sunshine. I'm obsessed. That's just how it is. And I love him. So that's it. All right, I'm done.